Many, many of us are quite familiar with the story of the Epiphany. And so, when I received the opportunity to speak with you this morning, I thought it might be interesting for you to hear a bit of history regarding this feast. When we use the term Epiphany today, most of us are referring to a specific event, the visitation of the Magi bearing gifts for the Christ child. That story made its way into the legacy of the Epiphany only gradually. The Eastern Feast of Lights was joined by the Western Feast of the Nativity on December 25th. Our Nativity celebration emerged in response to the teaching of the Incarnation, God becoming man from the Council of Nicaea in 325. By mid-fourth century, the Church in Gaul had incorporated the January 6th feast into its liturgical schedule, honoring the visit of the Magi, the baptism of our Lord, and the miracle at Cana. All of these three intertwined epiphanies regarding the identity and the presence of Jesus. Creeping liturgical practices are nothing new to the history of our church. As Christmas spread to an octave, so did the Epiphany. In fact, Epiphany encroached farther as the weeks before Lent were known as the Sundays after Epiphany. This term, as well as the octave of Epiphany itself, were suppressed in 1955 in favor of the season of Christmas, which now extends from the vigil of Christmas until the first Sunday after Epiphany, or January 6th, whichever comes first. I say all of this just so we recall what this is all about, the presence of the Christ child, a birthday that we all celebrate. It's got a little messed up recently by the society in being more important to buy gifts than to celebrate a birthday. But thank goodness the church has remained faithful to what the 25th is all about. Despite all of this, our church still honors a season of epiphanies in practice. These are the revelation of Jesus to the Jews through the Nativity, to the Gentiles through the Feast of the Epiphany, and his baptism in the River Jordan and his first miracle, the wedding of Cana. All of these remain liturgically and theologically linked as each of the four Gospels seek to make it clear the identity of Jesus has many first revelations. If you and I want to know who Jesus is, we must be attentive to all four Gospels. Do we, as a church, have a Feast of Lights? <clears throat> Consider the ways that light is promulgated in our scripture and imitated in our rites. In our first reading, we have Isaiah's proclamation to Jerusalem that your light has come, that God's glory will shine on a weary people newly returned from exile. Are we a people returning from exile or moving on following a pandemic? masks, and social distancing. God's shine is the Hebrew corollary, 
corollary to the Greek word epiphany. When God's face shines on us, God's glory is made real for us. Then you shall be radiant at what you see, Isaiah continues. So now we get to shine as if the revelation once given becomes a part of us. Maybe, just maybe, this is what gave rise to the halos in the portraits of saints, as if those who share an intimacy with God take away some of the radiance for themselves. It is the light of a star that guides the Magi on their way to a far-off land to worship a foreign king. Just how foreign, they could not know. All they had to go on was a light shining in the darkness. For them, that shining light was enough, which tells us they were men of extraordinary faith, putting their hope and trust in what they believed and lived. God does bring light in the darkness, darkest of times. God does feed hope when all is hopeless. Celebrating the birth of this one child affirms that in this child, the Christ, salvation shall become flesh and dwells amongst us. Our final question for each of us might be, how shiny are we after a year of masks and social distancing? Have we remembered that Christmas is the birth of Christ? God bless.